You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Well, thank you, Ashley, for reading. I feel like every time I preach, I do really long texts of scriptures, so... Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. So, Ashley, great job. Thank you. Church, I'm, I'm super excited uh, and a little bit sad to be closing out our, our sermon series that we've been working through together for the last four weeks. Pastor Mutasa talked a little bit about, a little bit about it, but what we've been doing is over the last four weeks, we've been uh, looking at some stories uh, throughout the New Testament, namely in the Gospels, where Jesus has been uh, stopping and encountering and engaging with people all around him, people of a variety of different backgrounds. And what he's been doing is meeting with them and giving them hope through the forgiveness of sins. And if you're new with us this morning, we're so glad that you're here. And, and hopefully, as you heard in the welcome, it, it's an exciting Sunday. I hope you're excited. I'm excited. Uh, I've been waiting a long time for, for this Sunday as we've announced the name and the next church plant. Um, and what's exciting, though, is actually even now, we're going to dive into a text of Scripture, uh, which has really been the, the epicenter of the dream. It's, it's helped name the church. Hopefully, you piece that together uh, in the reading. But uh, because you're here, one of the things you're getting is you're, hopefully you're getting almost like a backstage pass, as it were. Uh, and I hope it's a little less, I hope it's not like, come see how the sausage is made, and then you don't want sausage for the rest of your life. Uh, I hope it's a little bit more like when I was a kid, uh, my dad and I, who's with us this morning, very exciting, uh, we uh, probably too often, we would go to this donut shop, this elusive donut shop called Krispy Kreme. I say it's elusive because <laughs> I haven't seen many since I moved here. I don't know if you guys know, you can let me know, but what was really cool about the Krispy Kreme that we would go to is that it was in downtown, and, and one of the walls was totally made of glass. You could see right through, and it was so beautiful because you could see each life phase of the donut from, uh, from the batter to it getting rolled to dropping in the fryer to icing to then going right in your box and then right into my mouth. And uh, watching the process made me more excited about the donut. It inspired me to eat more, often too many. Uh, but I hope the experience this morning is a little bit more like that versus the sausage you never want to eat again. Uh, but friends, my, my ultimate goal today, it's, it's really not to woo you into joining a church plant. Actually, last week, one of our members uh, came up and said that during this series, uh, this series has helped her see that Jesus is much more glorious and beautiful than she could have ever really imagined. And, and that type of realization, that type of understanding about who Jesus really is, is really my ultimate hope for you as we work through this text this morning, is to show you that a life with Jesus will change everything about you. It's to show you that that book or the tablet or the phone in your hand that we call the Bible is the greatest, most important book in the entire world. Over the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus engage, like I said, with a variety of different people. The theme mainly has been that Jesus has been engaging with what we would call outcasts of society, people that you would normally uh, keep at maybe an arm's length that you wouldn't tend to engage with. And this morning, what we're going to see is Jesus engaging with some more people, but this time, uh, the people are a little bit different. These are not uh, people that are just now meeting Jesus for the first time. It's not people that have heard about Jesus and, you know, they want to go get the inside scoop. They're not going to the interest meeting about Jesus. Rather, these are people who have been walking with Jesus for some time. We know that they're disciples of Jesus. They're people that have likely uh, known Jesus for a long time. They've placed their faith in him as the Messiah. They've been baptized by him or his disciples. But where we find them in this story is disciples that are filled with a lot of grief. Disciples that are filled with a sense of hopelessness and missed expectations. And what they're in need of is some restoration. They're in need of some renewed hope. 
They're in need of somebody to tell them what they think is true is hopefully wrong. And through a long walk with Jesus and a meal with Jesus, these two disciples are going to be given some hope, some renewed restoration. And as we observe this story together, there are three big takeaways that I really want you to have. And here, here's the, here they are. The first one is that Jesus is near to the brokenhearted. The second is that Jesus is the hero of the Bible. And the third is that Jesus transforms mourning into joy. Our story this morning for our first point, it, it comes. So these verses at Asherah, they come right after about 12 verses where the gospel writer Luke is recounting for us the, the moments or the days after Jesus' crucifixion, namely three days after his crucifixion. And he recounts for us that there's these uh, women, Mary Magdalene and some others, who on the third day they go to Jesus' tomb, but they find that the tomb is empty, the stone is rolled away, and the crucified Messiah is no longer there. He also tells us that some angels have told them, hey, like, don't be sad. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? These poor women are probably like, everyone's, Jesus was always asking me weird questions. You're asking me weird questions. I don't know. I'm just here. And, but they go back, and, and this is what Luke writes. This is how he recounts it. He says, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Luke tells us that these women came to the now 11 disciples, and he says to the rest of them. And these two disciples in our text for today are in that category, the other ones. <laughs> they were two disciples, one named Cleopas and the other unnamed. It's, it's likely that uh, it was either Cleopas's wife or another disciple who's been walking for Jesus with some time. But we don't know a ton about them, but we do know that they know Jesus and Jesus knows them. We also know that they were recipients of some rather earth-shattering realities just three days before. As they watched their teacher, their friend, their king, their Messiah, or who they hoped was the Messiah, be crucified on a cross and buried in a tomb. In their minds, this moment, this crucifixion of Jesus as he hung his head in death was a dark, dark end to what they thought was the beginning of something great. Three days before this story, they had watched the rabbi die on a cross. And, and for them, it wasn't, they didn't know the end of the story. When you and I read the crucifixion, we, we know the end of the story. For us, it's like a hope deferred moment. We'll be sad for a little bit, but we know joy is coming in the morning. But these two disciples, they didn't have that. They didn't have hope deferred. For them, this was all hope is lost. Nothing good is coming from this. And as I thought about this and I pondered this, I, I was grappling and wrestling with just evidences in my own life where I've wrestled with the weight of missed expectations, the weight of, of what I thought was going to be something and it turned out not to be. This type of loss or unmet expectation can be felt from not getting the sauce in your to-go bag that you asked for so many times. But it could always also be maybe your church experience not being what you thought it would be. A marriage that you were so confident in, but three years later ends in divorce. A job that you've been working your whole life to get, and you've been applying for six months, and you make it to the last interview, and you get there, and they tell you, hey, we're just going to go in a different direction. These are the type of emotions I think these disciples were dealing with. We had we put all our eggs in this basket. We had put all our eggs in Jesus as the Messiah, and now he's dead. I mean, it's just a bitter end to what we hoped would happen. 
And in order to deal with this pain and these missed expectations, these disciples do what any good Christian does, and they go for a walk together. (laughs) Sometimes when I'm wrestling with hard things or hard circumstances in my life, I'll grab a friend and I'll say, "Let's, let's go for a walk. I just need to I don't know, something about me moving helps me think better. Maybe you have experienced the same thing. But one of the things I've actually noticed, though, about my, my walks or my grief walks is that uh, the bigger the pain or the bigger the sadness or the more confused that I feel, uh, the longer my walk tends to be. So uh, if it's, you know, the sauce not in the bag, it's just a quick lap around the building. And then I realize there's Chick-fil-A sauce in the fridge and it's okay. Uh, but if it's bigger grief, if it's harder things, sometimes it's all the way down to Canton waterfront and back. And I'm, I'm pretty gassed by the end of it. But these two disciples, after this, these life-changing moments with Jesus at the cross, they set out on a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. To put that in perspective for you, it'd be like if I was, something happened to me and I was like, Tim, put the boots on. I need to walk to BWI and back. Like that's, that's how far seven miles is from us. And based on the events that the disciples had just encountered, I would say that seven miles was an appropriate distance for them to try to make sense of all that's been going on. And the text tells us that as they walk together, Jesus draws near. Here's what Luke writes. He says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing. So you've got these two guys, they start on a walk, and to to the best of their knowledge, just some other guy just is like, I'm just going to walk with you. And, I'm, and we're going to find, he's going to ask him some questions. And he's going to teach him some stuff. But I love that, and I think Luke does this on purpose. And the picture that I think he's painting for us is this reality that these two disciples are about to go on a long, hard walk. They're dealing with suffering. And what Luke is showing us is that Jesus comes near to them. And friends, the same is true for you and I as you battle hard things, as you battle grief and missed expectations. The good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, he wants to walk alongside you. He wants to comfort you in your grief. And what's so cool is we're going to see how Jesus deals with it, how he encounters uh, these two sad disciples. As he draws near to them, he asks them, what is the conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Luke is painting some emotion for us. He wants us to recognize and see this was no normal walk. These two were in no normal state. They were in deep sadness. And as opposed to Jesus maybe rushing to the ending or rushing to the good news, I mean, I think if I had been Jesus, I'd be like, no, 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 don't be sad. Here I am. (laughs) You don't need to be sad anymore. But he does something very interesting. He asks an open-ended question. He essentially says to them, tell me more about what's going on. As I was pondering this, I was thinking about, and if you've ever had a, a, a hard grief encounter with like Pastor Wilson or Tim Wilkerson, this is the type of strategy that they often use, especially with me to try to draw hard things out of me. I'll come to the office and be like, I'm just upset. Nothing's going my way. Such, such, such. And Pastor Wilson will look at me, he'll like invite me into his office and he'll be like, tell me more about what's going on. And I joke and sometimes I don't like it because I'm like, you know what's going on. I don't want to talk anymore. Just... Just, just be sad with me. Um, but the reality is that this, this type of question is, is these two brothers and many others that have done this with me saying, hey, I, I want to understand a little bit better the grief that you're going through. As opposed to just coming into your sadness and telling you that you should get over it or Jesus is better, so move on. I want to step into the grief with you. I want to walk alongside you. 
And even though I know that every time I bring something hard to them, I know that the direction we're headed is to the gospel, it's to the cross, it's to the good news of who Jesus is to me and my suffering. What I love about this moment with them and what I think Jesus is doing here is saying, hey, I want to walk with you to the good news. I don't want to punch you down the, punch you to the finish line, but I want to teach you and walk with you and help you see it yourself. And as Jesus asked them this question, their response to him is in some ways humorous, uh, but it's very plain. Cleopas uh, responds to Jesus by saying, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. Jesus asked his probing question, and we get the sense that Cleopas and the other disciple are just like annoyed or baffled by the question itself. Like, what do you mean you don't know? I mean, are you, have you been living under a rock or something? I mean, kind of. <laughs> man! <laughs> I'm working so hard on that. You know what? You guys had the same, <laughs> you had the same reaction that the first service had, but I, I, that's on you. I, I, I feel good about that one. But as the conversation continues, as Jesus engages with them, we see the real reason behind these disciples' emotion is, is not necessarily because Jesus doesn't know who Jesus is or this stranger doesn't know what's been going on around town. But their grief is coming because their hope has been crushed. In verse 21, they say to Jesus, but, but we had hoped that he, Jesus, was the one to redeem Israel. The feeling is like, man, don't you get it? I mean, Jesus was everything. He was coming to rescue and redeem, to to make things right. And now death has intruded and it's messed the whole thing up. And as Jesus hears the pain, he responds to them in an odd but beautiful way. He offers them the most precious thing that he could give them, which was the scriptures, or for you and I, the Bible. And through a a masterclass of sorts on the Old Testament, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to lead these disciples to see our second point, which is that Jesus is the hero of the Bible. As I was thinking through this passage with some guys this week, uh, we were pondering and talking about how beautiful this was. But one thing that each of us was unanimously struck by was, was Jesus' tactic. It was his decision in this moment. I mean, the way that the story is progressing thus far, it really feels like we're moving towards one of those uh, Scooby-Doo moments where, like, at the end, they, like, rip the mask off, and it's like, oh, it's been you the whole time. Like, that's what it, it feels like we're going, that in a moment, Jesus is going to let them understand and see who he is, and they'll be like, oh, like, great, we're good. But he, he doesn't. He, he continues to conceal his identity and take them to the scriptures. I mean, I think that had he revealed himself, it would have taken some of the sting away. It would have felt like it had healed the grief and taken it away. But, but Jesus wants to do something more. He wanted to reorient their understanding of who the Messiah really was and what the scriptures had really been teaching about this promised Messiah. Based on their interaction with Jesus thus far, I think it's become clear to us and to Jesus that they still lack some understanding about who Jesus really is and what he's come to do. I mentioned verse 21 a minute ago, but what they said in that response to Jesus was, we thought he was coming to redeem the nation Israel. Their expectation for a Messiah was one that would be like Moses, but just a little bit better. (laughs) 
that would take them out of suffering. Political pain would deliver Israel from oppression. It certainly wasn't a Messiah who was going to come in meekness and quietness, being known only by a few and ultimately being suffered and being delivered unto death. But what I think Jesus is wanting to show them is that it's that type of Messiah. It's a suffering Messiah that the scriptures have foretold. So instead of revealing who he is and allowing these disciples to walk away with a still kind of shallow understanding, Jesus opens the scriptures. One author, as he was pondering this and commentating on it, he was also struck by the the nature of this decision from Jesus. And he said, If the risen Christ on that first Easter day made himself known through the word, then we should not suppose we can do anything different. Jesus is raising the bar here. He's going to say to them, It's not enough to simply know my name and know my face and even see my resurrected body. I need you to see me in the scriptures knowing that the word is the greatest thing that you have, the thing that I'm going to leave you with to to accomplish the Great Commission, to show people the beauty of who I am. I need you to know it. And don't get me wrong, knowing the Bible will lead to a relationship and a saving knowledge of me, but Jesus is saying, to know me is to know my words. And church, this is why we preach on Sundays. This is why we open the scriptures each and every week, often moving line by line through books of the Bible, because we really believe it would be a disservice to you if every Sunday you came in here and one of us just got up and talked about who we feel like Jesus is or what we think he's done, or even even talk about good things about what he's doing. The greatest thing that we can give you is an understanding of how to interact and read the Bible, because we, we really believe that these are the very words of God. This is what he's given you to help you know him. It's not a church. It's not a pastor, although those are things we like to help with. But he says, here's my word. Know me and love me because of it. We want to have the very words of God, the very substance of who he is. And Jesus is going to show these disciples this reality. Listen to what Luke says that he says to them. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I imagine along their wall that Jesus uh, listened to them for a good mile. He empathized really well with them. And then he says, my turn. I want to open the scriptures, do my master class on the Old Testament. I imagine as he was moving through the prophets and through the, uh, through the Old Testament that he was saying and showing them things along the lines of, I was the real lamb that took Isaac's spot on the mountain. I was the real king that Israel needed. Jesus is really the slam, slain lamb that will take away the sins of all people. And as he wraps up, and as they're approaching Emmaus, it seems, the text tells us that Jesus is like about ready to say goodbye. He's like, you guys exit here. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> However, these disciples, still not knowing who Jesus was, they've been captivated by this man. They've been captivated by what he's been showing them, things they've never seen in the Old Testament. And so like, no, 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 please don't go. Come inside and tell us more. And so there was a sense of we want to learn more, we want to hear more about what Jesus is saying. But the other reality is this, this road from Jerusalem to Emmaus and on was a rather dangerous road to travel on. It's not something you would do alone. You would be uh, subject to uh, crime, pain, a lot of things like, hey, we want to hear what you have to say, but also probably best if you don't like walk outside at night by yourself. And so uh, let's invite him inside. And, 
And this was kind of them. This was some great hospitality on their part. But I do imagine that this last minute invite for Jesus into their house was a bit of a scramble. Uh, This wasn't something they were planning on. And so to make accommodations was uh, last minute. And as I thought about this, I thought about, um, I think one of the one of the ways I have been unloving to my family, namely my wife, in the past is when I like get home from work and I'm like, hey, sweetheart, um, I hope you had a good day. Uh, Such and such is going to be here in like 10 minutes uh, for dinner. And she's like, oh, really? Uh, You didn't want to tell me about that sooner? Like, look at the house. Look at you. You, It's all a wreck. Like, we were going to have Cheerios for dinner. I can't can't serve Cheerios to, to this person. In her grace, my wife uh, always forgives me when I drop this on her last minute, but I I bring this up because some of the most impactful moments in my life as a Christian or when I was a new Christian was when I received a last minute invite to the dinner table. When I really had no business or plan being in someone's house and they said, hey, uh, we weren't planning on you, but we'd love to have you. Some of the biggest ways that many of you sitting in this room right now have impacted my life, my wife, my family, and have helped me love Jesus better is by showing up to my door unannounced, knocking, uh, and just coming inside. Sometimes bringing ice cream, sometimes bringing gifts like the wise men. (laughs) But but really, it's just to come in and say, hey, um, we love you. How was your day? Can we hear about you, and can you hear about me, and can we together talk about all the ways that God is moving and working in our lives? And it's this beautiful act of being together and eating together is what Jesus is going to use to actually tie the bow on this whole thing that he's been doing. Listen to how Luke describes it. He says, when he, Jesus, was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. So after all this probably scrambling, get the table ready, get the bread ready, get the mats out for Jesus, they finally sit down. They're like, this is going to be a good meal. We're going to hear a lot more from Jesus. He said some crazy stuff on the road. I need some time to understand. And, and Jesus picks up the bread and he prays for it and he breaks it. And then he leaves. <laughs> He's gone. A couple options here. He maybe could have just vanished. Uh, he maybe excused himself to the bathroom, crawled out the window, never came back. <laughs> but as this moment occurs, as Jesus vanishes from them and does not return to the dinner table, it, the text tells us that in this moment, their eyes were open to who this man really was. As they came to understand the scriptures and sit with Jesus at the table, the Lord opened their eyes to see that Jesus was the very one sitting before them, that Jesus was the one on the road teaching them about Jesus. This combination of the word preached and the presence of a meal together with friends is what brought clarity to the person of Jesus for these disciples. And this theme of Jesus and a meal and something very special happening at the dinner table together is a very common theme throughout the Gospel of Luke. If you read the Gospel of Luke, you'll see this a lot. And what you'll also see is a lot of parallels to all the other times that it happens in the Gospel of Luke. This moment for the Emmaus Road disciples is is actually very similar to Luke's account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Both of the stories happen in the afternoon. 
the moment actually leading up to the breaking of bread and the meal together, we find that there's a lot of misguided assumptions about who this person is, who this Jesus is. People are wondering if he's a better John the Baptist or if he's another Moses or if he's just a really cool rabbi saying some cool things. And then in the moment, the meal ends with Jesus breaking the bread, praying for it, and the people around him finally understanding who he really is. The only thing that's really different about the Emmaus encounter for these two disciples is, is in the meal they go, because they already believe that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, this is what they had put their hope in. But what happens in this moment is they finally come to understand the true Messiah, the suffering Messiah, the one that the scriptures had foretold for so long that it, finally it all makes sense to them. The suffering that they watched Jesus go through that seemed so pointless, so wrong, so out of touch with the plan really was the plan indeed. And this type of theme that we see in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is both teaching and preaching and being with people around the dinner table is a theme that I'd love uh, to invite you into in your own life as you walk with Jesus. It's not terribly complicated, but I, I say that because I think sometimes as, as we as Christians uh, are saying, hey, how do I follow God? How do I be obedient to God? What is, what is God calling me to do? Is he calling me to go overseas? Should I be a pastor? Should I go to seminary? Should I just quit my job and say, do whatever? Sometimes it's confusing, and I think we love the stories. Uh, I talked about, when I preached a couple weeks ago, I talked about a guy who gave his whole life and tried to go reach an uh, unreached people group that had, didn't even know his language and never heard the gospel. And sometimes God calls us to do things like that, to put everything on the line in a way that we never thought we would. And we love those stories, and we're always going to celebrate when God does something huge and miraculous like that. But can I tell you what God wants and loves just as much as those big things? He loves when you get up on Sunday morning and invite that one person in the back of the room that's been sitting alone out to lunch after the service. He loves when you bring a mom, a worn out, uh, bring a worn out mom a cup of coffee and tell her that although nobody else sees her, God sees her and her labor is not in vain. When you stay late after your gospel community group to encourage someone in the room that's just been looking sad the whole time <laughs> to say, hey, I, I noticed something about you. Can you tell me more about what's going on? You seem heavy and I want to understand. I want to know and walk with you better. He loves when you're willing to say the house is a mess. I got nothing but cheese sticks and whipped cream for the dinner table, but I'd love to have you in my home for dinner. I'd love to let you walk through all the clothes on the floor and sit at the dinner table and eat this weird food with me so that I can share and tell you about the love that Jesus has for you and tell you about a meal that's going to be way better than this one. This is why we often say at RCC that we want to be a church family with worn out Bibles and worn out dinner tables. Because this is the way that Jesus did it. This is how he ministered to people. He recognized something so special about uh, nourishing a physical need while you nourish a spiritual need. And so these disciples, what we've seen, three points that Jesus is near to the brokenhearted. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. And thirdly, Jesus transforms mourning into joy. Once Jesus leaves these disciples at the house, they have this moment of understanding that, that he is the Messiah, and, and not only the Messiah, but the suffering Messiah. Like, didn't expect it, but it's who he is. And so, once again, these disciples are like, that was a lot. 
new expectation, Cleopas, lace the sandals back up, like, I need another walk, because the whole Old Testament is different to me now, I need some more processing. So these two, they lace back up, and they go back out on another seven-mile walk, except this time the walk is from Emmaus back to Jerusalem. Again, I imagine seven miles was an appropriate distance to process all that Jesus had just told them. The text tells us that he taught them like basically the whole Old Testament in seven miles. So it takes us years to do that here. So, <laughs> But more than just a walk to talk it over this time, this time they set out on a walk in the opposite direction with opposite news than they did the first time around. On their walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, they carried with them grief confusion, sadness, hopelessness, and a sense that God and his promises were nowhere to be found. That this, this Jesus that they had put their hope in was, was a fraud. It wasn't what they thought it would be. Yet once they had an encounter with the living God and his living word, they journeyed down the same path from which they came. Except this time their hearts were filled with joy and hope and with truth. For they knew that because they had seen Jesus and they had heard the words of Jesus and encountered him, the fact that Jesus had really raised from the dead and they had spent time with him, they had seen them, that Jesus had encountered death and come out of the grave alive, that the reality for them would be the same. No longer was the toil of life a path with no end. No, this time their hope was certain and it was sure. And this reality not only compelled them to rejoicing, but it moved them to go and share the news. The text tells us that they, the disciples, rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So they walked seven miles again to go back and share the news with the followers of Jesus and those who had witnessed the crucifixion. They knew that there were some in the next place and the old place that were experiencing what they had been experiencing on that whole walk. Those who were sitting in Jerusalem still wondering, where is Jesus? What has just happened to us? And Jerusalem now, the place where their hopes had seemingly come to die, and as a result turned their back on and left, was now the place that they were going back to with hope and truth. And friends, as the gospel for you and I renews hope regularly in each of us, and I hope you know that about the gospel. If you've been a Christian for a year or 10 years, this gospel good news, hope will flutter sometimes. Sadness and death will intrude And we'll need moments like this, where the gospel renews in us the hope of who Jesus is. And as it does that, I hope that it compels you and I to go and to share it with those who do not have it. To lace up the sandals and walk to places where we know people are sitting just like these disciples who stayed in Jerusalem were sitting. In a place of confusion and loss, wondering what's next. Wondering if the God of the universe that's maybe true or not true really does care about them really wants to renew them and really has the power to change something in their life. As I've said, this is one of my favorite texts in the Bible. I mean, one would hope it is if you're going to name, you know, a whole church after it. Uh, It's one of my favorite moments in scripture. 
And as I read this story again and again, I'm, I'm often blown away at how this text applies in my life in different moments in my life, in my walk with Jesus. And I think as you read this, hopefully again and again, and you find yourself coming back to it throughout your walk with Christ, you will find, I think, that you often identify with different people in the story at different times in your life. At moments, you will feel like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, full of grief and confusion, feeling like you're walking a road with a stranger you don't know, wondering where Jesus is at. You can't see him. He certainly doesn't feel close. Where is he? And as I find myself feeling this way at times in my own life, I'm reminded that these disciples felt like Jesus was nowhere to be found, even though he was walking with them the whole time. As they saw him, as they heard his voice, as they bumped shoulders with him along the path, they had no idea who was really walking with them. But as the very words of God were said out loud to them, as the scriptures were expounded on, as God's true plan for their life and the life of everyone around them came into view, they finally recognized the man that had been walking with them the whole time. And it leads me to say, friends, can I encourage you that Jesus is walking with you? We said that Jesus draws near in our suffering. And the good news is that like these disciples, as you walk through all that the Lord has for you, both good and bad, that Jesus is walking with you. He sees you. And even when you feel that he's distant or you can't recognize his voice, he's there. And what he did with these disciples is, even though they, they felt like Jesus was nowhere to be found, and he could have just said, I'm here, stop being sad. He says, let me take you to the place where you always know that I am. Let me take you to the scriptures where you know how I feel, where you know about my affections for you, where you know about the plans that I have for you. And as we, church family, prepare to plant a church named Emmaus, and yes, we, because it's a group project, you'll find out, our hope and prayer is that God would grant us many opportunities to model Jesus in this story, to come alongside many across our city who are wandering down the path of life alone, a metaphorical Emmaus road, journeying to a place that they're unsure about and wondering if Jesus is with them along the path. If God is sympathetic towards the hardships that they're encountering. We want to jump on the road with them and, and share with them the goodness of Jesus. To open up our Bibles alongside them and say, let me tell you about a man who knows your name. And not only does he know you, but he loves you. He loves you so much that he tasted death and rose again so that you would know exactly what the point is of all of this stuff. So that you would know Christ's never-ending love for you. So that you would know when grief comes, when sadness comes, when death intrudes around you, and when it intrudes for you one day, that your certainty in Christ is sure. As I think about the characters in the story, one of the other characters I, I love to imagine about, they don't get any uh, FaceTime here in the text, but it's reasonable to assume that they were there, is, is the family members that were likely present in the house in Emmaus. Those that were in the house, when the two disciples came in and said, hey, we got this guy, not sure about him, saying some cool stuff, can you help us like serve him dinner? Those that were scrambling to set the table, to bake the bread, to make sure there was accommodation for these two disciples and for Jesus to have a meal together. And what I love to imagine is the moment where they hopefully got to see the light bulb go off, 
where they got to see a family member or someone close to them finally understand exactly who Jesus really is and what he's done for them. This type of moment is a, a beautiful moment. Perhaps some of the more rewarding moments about being a minister or even just being a Christian and witnessing or discipling with somebody in your life. A moment where you get to see them understand exactly who Jesus is. And oftentimes it comes by a meal. It comes by setting the table for someone to come in and have an encounter with Jesus. And as a church planner, my goal is to be a really good host for people to come in and have a meal with Jesus. To be one in the background that says, let me set the table for you. I, I don't want to sit down and talk to you, although I'd love to. But what I want for you is to come in and have an encounter with the living God that knows you and loves you way better than I do or any church in the world does. That's the type of ministry that we want to have. And church family, I want to invite you to pray with me that both RCC, Emmaus Church, and hopefully all the other church plants that get sent out of this place by God's grace will be a place like this where people get to come in, sit at the table with us that we've worked hard to prepare at times and feast together on the grace of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we're so humbled by you. God, we're so humble and grateful that we serve a God like you, a God that looked upon us with compassion, that left his throne above to become like us, to live a life with us, to walk with us, to eventually suffer and die for us so that our grief could find hope. God, would this text cement in our hearts, would it form us into better disciples, better followers of you, God, that, that see the hope of Jesus laced throughout the scriptures, that carry those scriptures to Baltimore City and cities around the world, offering the good news of the hope of Jesus to all around us. God, would you bless the rest of our time as we sing and we celebrate, as we take communion together, God, would our affections be stirred again? God, would our hope be renewed again in who you are and what you're doing in this place? Jesus, we love you so much. We do all of this for your glory and your honor. In Christ's name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.